We do rejoice in the fact that Jesus is our Savior, as Jordan said, and that in Christ, we are the people of God. And it's good to be together with the people of God today. If I haven't met you, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Covenant, and I have the honor of preaching God's word to you today. If you do have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to finish the chapter. As Blake mentioned earlier, John 6, and we're these last few verses beginning in verse 60. I'll read aloud through verse 71. John 6, 60 through 71. We believe that a disciple of Jesus, John, wrote these words, but he writes them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us today with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching. So let's hear together the word of Christ. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the great privileges that I have in my ministry is to teach. Um, I like teaching seminary classes. I've taught church history for Midwestern Seminary. I've taught a spirituality course uh, for RTS Seminary here in Atlanta. Um, we have our little pastor school, which by the way, if, if you are, have ever been interested in theological education, uh, we offer heavily, heavily, heavily discounted classes that actually are accredited through Southern Seminary. Um, I teach some of them. Bruce, uh, Bruce Ware was here in the spring teaching systematic theology. Uh, Dr. Will Kynes is going to be here in the fall teaching Old Testament. So I'd love for you to take advantage of that. But one of the things that you do in seminary when you're getting a theological education is you write. 
And, and it makes sense, right? I mean, you, you know, you have to learn how to express ideas in a way that people can understand those ideas, in a way that people can understand what you're trying to express. And so one of the things that I do is I'm working with these guys that are in my classes is help them to write, help them to figure out how to write a paper, how to write something in the kind of way <laughs> that makes sense. And, and the key to a good paper, you didn't know you were getting an English class today. The key to a good paper is coming up with a good thesis statement and then being able to argue that thesis statement, being able to prove that the thesis that you laid forward is actually true and right. Now, John, in his gospel, has a great thesis statement, and, and he does an amazing job arguing it, showing that this is right, that this is true. Now, the thesis statement in John's gospel comes at the end. We've been looking at this. In John chapter 20, John says that I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And what John has done over and over and over throughout the book, what we've seen in John chapter 6 so pointedly, is John doing this, showing the readers that Jesus is the Christ, showing the readers that Jesus really is the fulfillment of all things. He really is the promised Messiah. He really is the one that would come and save the whole world. He is the better Moses who provides an even better Passover meal to his people in the wilderness. He is the true provision. We saw later in the chapter, he's the Lord of the sea. He's the one who is over everything that God has created and even God's creation obey his voice. Of course, we see he's the better bread. He is the true bread that really satisfies. Over and over, John is showing us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe in him, you can have life in his name. What John begins to do kind of in the second part of the chapter here is show what this life, life in his name, looks like. Last week, if you were here, we spent a lot of time talking about this idea of life, this, this life that comes, this, this Zoe that comes by feasting on Christ. And so two questions that I, I want to look at today as we think about getting a life, having a life in Christ. First, how do you know if you're feasting on Christ in order to gain this life? And secondly, how do you feast? <laughs> how do you know if you are feasting? That seems to be a big question of this passage. And secondly, how do you feast? What does it mean to feast? So how do you know if you're feasting on Jesus? Again, if you are here last week, Chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And if you were here last week, of course, we explained that Jesus here is speaking metaphorically. He wasn't actually 
telling them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Jesus does this many times throughout the Gospel of John. He, he refers to himself as something. I am the bread here. But he also says, I am the door. I am the light. I am the shepherd. I am the vine. Jesus doesn't really think that he is a vine. He's using this as a metaphor. He's showing where life comes from. And here he's using the metaphor of bread. I am the bread. I am the one that gives you real life. Now, if you're here last week, just a quick review. We looked at these two Greek words for life. The first is the word bios, which is where we get the idea of biology. And, and Greeks, the Greeks use this to talk about your physical life, your bios, your, your living life, your physical being that is alive. And of course, in order for your body to stay alive, you do need bread. You need physical food that your body takes and breaks down and energizes your cells so that you can stay alive. But the other word that the Greeks use for life, and this is the word that's being used over and over and over again by Jesus, is zoe. And Zoe is kind of your internal life, the life of who you are, the meaning that you need to get from life, the purpose that you want to have in life. I want my life to count. You're not just staying there. I want to stay alive. You're saying, I want who I am, the person of me, to mean something. And as we said last week, people feast, to use the analogy, on all sorts of things to find Zoe. They feast on their work, right? If I can have this job, then I will really have life. I'll really be someone where they feast on achievement or accomplishments. If I can just do this, if I could get to this status, if I could make this much money, if I could be this successful, then I would have life. Some people achieve on some sort of moral achievement. If I could obey in this way, if I could follow this law in this way, then I would have life. I would have Zoe, see. They're not saying I need these things, you know, I need to advance in my career in order for my cells to stay alive. They're saying, I want to have meaning. I want to have purpose. Some people, it's relationships, right? If this person would just love me, then... I would have purpose. I would have a Zoe. I would have life. And what Jesus is saying here, in the same way that you look for Zoe in your work, in your moral achievement, in your successes, in your relationships, what he's saying is, no, feast on me. This is the bread that you should be hungering for. This is the bread that gives you life. But this passage, today's passage, brings up this big question, how do you know if you're feasting on Christ or not? How do you know if you really hunger for him or not? How do you know if you're eating this bread it's so interesting to me. Look at verse 60. Right before they turn away, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer walked after him. It's interesting, in both of these cases, these followers of Jesus, they're called disciples, followers of Jesus, followers who weren't really followers. Now, Jesus never seems too concerned with losing followers. He never seems too concerned with losing followers, does he? I mean, I feel like if it was me, and all of a sudden I'd said something weird about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and all you guys left, before you got out of the door, I'd be like, hold on, hold on, I, I was talking metaphorically. Come back. Come listen to my sermon. Jesus never does this. He, he's never concerned with losing followers. But you know what Jesus is very concerned with? He's very concerned about having followers who aren't really followers. About having disciples who aren't really disciples. There is a way to follow him and not believe in him. I think I can say it clearly this way. There is a way to identify with Christianity and never know Christ. Some people may be in this room. You have identified with Christianity, but you don't know Jesus. You're not feasting on him. And again, this is not a new idea. Romans 9, we read the same thing happened in Israel, right? Not all who call themselves Israel are Israel. Not everybody who took on the name of Israel. Now, this is amazing. You're born a descendant of Abraham. You're, you are among the covenant people. You are a part of all of the rituals that the covenant people are doing. You're, you're memorizing the word of God, and, and yet the, the word still says not all who call themselves Israel are the true Israel. And so I think I, I need to ask you this question. Are you feasting on Jesus? Are you truly feasting on Jesus? Is he your true food? It, it's only when you feast on him that you have Zoe, that you have life. And so are you feasting on Jesus? I think this can be hard to know. It can be hard to perceive. And again, this comes up over and over and over again throughout the ministry of Jesus. Think of the wheat and the tares, right? What's the announcement? It's a good illustration, right? You look out into the field, the wheat, the, the good fruit, and the tear, the empty fruit, you can't, you can't tell. You look at the field, you don't know which one is which. It all just looks like a field, right? Or the sheep and the goats, same thing. You look at the field from a distance, you see a bunch of spots on the hill, which one are sheep, which one are goats? You can't tell. Or what about the two houses, the one built on the rock and the one built on the sand? Again, from a distance, they both just look like beautiful houses. How about when Jesus says this in Matthew? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, Jesus says, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, even the parable of the soils, I was thinking about this week. Remember the parable of soils? Some of the seed falls on the path. Some falls among the thorns. Some falls on the rocky soil. Some falls on the good soil. But only the seed that falls on the path doesn't at first spring up. Three out of the four seeds grow. (laughs) They look, oh, they're doing great. But only the good soil survives. You know, there's a great strain in Christian doctrine between the doctrine of assurance, the assurance of salvation, and the perseverance of salvation or the perseverance of the saints, right? In Christ, you're assured that God will keep you, yet you must persevere. And we see both in the Bible. Think about John 10, 28 through 30. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given uh, them to me is greater than I and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Of course, we see in this passage, right? The spirit, the spirit of God gives life. It's not the flesh. It's God who gives life. God who keeps our lives. Or verse 65, no one can come unless it is granted to him by the Father. So there's this idea in Christ, because of the grace and the work of God, we're assured of the keeping power of the Father, yet in the same Bible we see that we must endure. We have to keep following him. Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Revelation 3, 21, the one who endures, I will grant to sit on my throne. So which one is it? Which one's good Christian doctrine here? Does God keep the saints or do the saints have to endure? And the answer is the saints who endure are the saints who God keeps. (laughs) We don't really know for certain, but we do know this. Not everyone who calls themselves Israel is Israel. Who are the saints? They're the ones who endure. According to Jesus, it is very hard to have a false faith. It is very hard, it is very easy rather, it's very easy to have a false faith. It's very easy to have faith for a little while and then ultimately turn from him. Now there are a lot of reasons that people begin to follow Jesus. It was reasons that we see in this story. Some people may be following Jesus because of the crowd, right? In this story, the crowd begins to follow Jesus. He's doing all of these works. People are fascinated by this man. He's doing these amazing things, and everybody's saying, okay, maybe I'll go out and see what's going on. There's a big crowd there. I think Blake shared this. I can't remember if he shared it on Our Daily Rhythm or in a sermon, but we were fishing off the uh, Georgia coast about a month ago, and we saw these seagulls. We were near these shrimp boats, We saw these seagulls, and they'd all be at one shrimp boat, and then a couple of them would fly to another shrimp boat. And you know what all the rest of the seagulls did? They'd fly over there to the other shrimp boat. And you got to think, what's going on in that little seagull's mind? Is it better over there at the other shrimp boat, or is he just like, well, everybody's flying over here now? And don't we kind of do the same thing? We're kind of following the crowd. You may be following 
Jesus because of the crowd. You may not be following Jesus because of the crowd. Some of you here are, haven't given your life to Christ because there's pressure from a crowd. You, you, you feel like it, man, these people think I'm ridiculous if I give myself to Jesus. But some of you may be here only because of the crowd. I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. But here's the question. What if the crowd leaves? What if the crowd walks away? Jesus says to the 12, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Is it really Jesus you're feasting on? Or are you feasting on the crowd? Some of you may be following Jesus because he gives you bread, right? We see this in the story. Jesus gives bread and people are looking for a meal. They're going after him. They say, okay, feed us again, Jesus. Feed us again. And some of you, again, you may not actually be looking for bread, but you're thinking, look, I want to get in good with God. I want him to bless my business. I want to, I want to have God's blessing on my life. But is he really Lord to you? Is he Savior to you? Or is he just your business partner? Is he just someone you've made a good deal with? Look, Jesus, I'll do a few things for you, but you've got to do a few things for me, and we'll have a happy relationship here. Is that who Jesus is to you? Are you really feasting on Jesus, or are you just making good deals? What happens when Jesus doesn't give you everything you want? What happens when Jesus is unpopular? What happens when Jesus is not a good business partner? What are you feasting on then? But here's the question. How do you know? How do you know if you're really following Jesus or not? Well, I think the answer is in verse 68. Again, verse 66, all the disciples leave. They turn away. They can't handle the teaching of Christ. So Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? You know, Martin Lloyd Jones said of this passage, anyone who has any conceivable alternative to Jesus is not a Christian. Anyone who has any conceivable alternative to Jesus is not a Christian. Lord, to whom shall we go? I love this passage. It's so honest. I, I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think that Peter actually knows everything that Jesus is talking about here, but to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Is this how you hunger for Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Your words give us meaning and purpose. Is this where you are? Do you hunger and thirst for Christ like this? How do you know if you're feasting on Christ? Can you really say this? To whom shall I go? And, and, and to answer this question, you have to answer the question, what is it that Jesus really gives you? And what we see the answer here, his word. You have the word of eternal life. Do you long to hear the words of Jesus, to know Jesus, to commune with Jesus? To whom shall we go? Do you really believe that his words give 
life. We, we know Jesus by his words, by his truth. Are you feasting on his truth? You know, it's interesting. There was a few weeks ago, there was a church discipline case that actually made public news. A church had to discipline one of its members, and it made public news, the local news. And I was reading the story, and, and I think I kind of read, I saw the church handle. They seemed to handle it in a biblical way. They were following the process that we see in the Bible of church discipline. They were trying to honor the words of Christ, yet over and over in the comments under the section of this case, over and over people were saying, this isn't the way of Christ. Jesus would never say this. Jesus would never say that. It's just interesting to me because the very things that people were saying that Jesus would never say are the very things that Jesus said. And they were the very things that Jesus told the church to do. I think it's really telling. We live in a time when everyone wants to make Jesus something that he is not. They want to make a God in their image that they can fashion and say, be that they can have this God that is like whatever they want him to be. And really, it becomes an idol that they have named Jesus. Are you following Jesus or are you following an idol that you named Jesus? And if you're following a little idol, that you have named Jesus, I just wanted to tell you, I'll give you a test. That Jesus, your idol Jesus, has no authority and he's gonna give you no authority. Some of the reason that your Christian life is so weak and so fruitless, that you're not making disciples, is that you actually don't know Jesus. You're not feasting on Jesus. You don't have life in his name. Jesus isn't some make-believe person that makes you feel better, some therapeutic deism, as Christian Smith says. No, he's the Son of God, and he's revealed himself. He has spoken. He has made himself known, and we can know him by his words. Peter understood this. Who else will we go to? You have the words of life. You know, this is actually one of my favorite passages, and I've said it before. I, I'd, I'd actually like to get verse 68 on my tombstone someday because I think it's just what Christianity is. Whom else will I go to? I, I don't know that Peter fully understood Jesus, and I'm going to break it to you. I'm a professional Christian, and I don't even understand some of the words of Jesus sometimes. I haven't fully gotten this thing figured out. Sometimes Jesus says things that are really hard for me to obey, but they're the words of life. They're the words that actually give life. And just like Peter, when the crowds leave, it's confusing, it's hard, it's sad, it's frustrating, but to whom else will we go? You have the words of Zoe. Are you feasting on Jesus? Are you following Jesus like this? Is Jesus like this to you? Do you hunger for his word like this? And so the second thing that I wanna talk about and very practically how, how do you feast on Jesus? 
How do you feast on Jesus? Well, four kind of very practical things. How do we consume his word? First, feast on Jesus by actively filling your heart with the word of Christ. Feast on Jesus by actively filling your heart with the word of Christ. What you consume matters. This is a principle all throughout the Bible. You know, in the Old Testament, there's all these dietary laws, right? This, this, this metaphor of bread and feasting and the word of God goes all the way through the Bible and all in the Old Testament as we see these dietary laws. How is it always anchored? Don't eat this, don't eat this, do eat this, do eat this. And then how God always ends that as he says, be holy for I am holy. What you consume, what you put into your heart and mind and, and even body, it matters. What are you feasting on? Are you actively consuming the word of Christ? And again, we see this all throughout the Bible. This is an old idea. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 1. The Psalms begin this way. Blessed is the man who, not, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the skeet of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. What are you consuming? And you know, part of what you're doing right now is consuming the word of Christ. This is why this discipline of gathering with the church and hearing the word preached is such an important part of the Christian life. Be a part of a word-driven worship service. But again, I want to give you this warning. All of Israel is not Israel, right? All preaching is not preaching. Let me give you two questions to ask yourself when you listen to a sermon. Number one, did this sermon help me understand the word of God better? After listening to this sermon, do I understand what God has revealed in his word more? And then second, did this sermon help me trust in myself less and Jesus more? There is a kind of preaching that actually leads you to feast on the food that perishes harder, <laughs> to go work harder, to go do more, to go try harder. And let me just tell you, that kind of preaching is exhausting. But there is a kind of preaching that actually gives you life when you learn to trust in yourself less and learn to trust in the life giver, the food that actually gives you Zoe, Jesus, to trust him more. Other ways to actively consume, to be actively filling your heart, with the word of Christ, of course, is some sort of devotional life. Now, if this is new to you, how do I do this? What does that mean? Christians talk about having some sort of devotional life, and what we mean by this is just having a few moments every day where you spend time reading the Bible, praying, journaling, some, maybe sometimes singing, but just some time to focus on the Lord, to align yourself with the Lord, to fill your heart with the word of God so you can meditate you could feast on the word of Christ all day long. And a couple of just really practical helps that we have for you here. First of all, I think we have slides. If you go on our webpage, we have these field guides, all of the rhythms of grace that we kind of act, ask our members to be a part of. We have written very short. And when I say very short, I mean you can read the whole thing in 15 minutes. You know, if you have to do some summer reading, kids, and it doesn't matter which book you read, read our field guides. You can read the whole, all like in 10 minutes each. 
But the field guides, there's one on personal devotion. It'll help you find your way into a rhythm of feasting on the word of God regularly. Another great tool that we have is the rhythms guide. And again, these are all free for you. We're not selling anything here. So this is just a daily Bible reading plan. They sometimes go along with our sermons. We have the scripture for our sermons. There's a place to uh, take sermon notes in there. They're great little journals. We pass them out every quarter. We may have some available. Going along with that is what we call our daily rhythm, which this is a, a podcast that we produce and literally every day, okay, if you're like, man, I'm not a reader, okay, you can listen to this podcast. It's better if you read. But you can listen to this podcast every day, and, and we read the Word of God and talk about it. It's a way to align your heart, to feast on the Lord. I, plead, I urge you toward these, and there's many, many things available to actively fill your heart with the Word of Christ. Second, be among word-filled people. Be among the word-filled people of the Lord. You know, there's a difference between friendship and Christian friendship, right? And here it is. Are, do you have friends? Is there a community in your life that's word-filled community? People that are speaking the truth to you. Ephesians 4.15, and I think this is one of the most foundational verses in the Bible, this is speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. How do you grow in Christ? How do you feast on Christ? You know, you know the thing above everything else, and I'm going to say this. This is true. More than me being a minister, more than me even my, even my personal study, more than my personal study, the thing that has framed and shaped and encouraged and corrected in my spiritual growth and my ability to feast on the Lord are Christian friendships are people that I know and love that have spoken the truth to me in love, that have corrected me in love, that have encouraged me in love, that have helped me think about Christ. Who is this in your life? Are you a part of this kind of rhythm? We're regularly around other believers that are speaking the truth and love to you. And I'm just gonna tell you, once you get this, you'll crave it, you'll have an appetite for it. You know, this week, I went on a little trip this week and I left Wednesday night really late after our little Wednesday night community group. And somebody said, man, why don't you just skip community group? You're going to get on the road so late. And I said, I love my community group. <laughs> I just want to be around Christians talking about the word. It just feels good. I, you know, and I, don't, I didn't teach. I wasn't leading. I just wanted to listen to what they had to say. It's good for me. My soul needs it. And again, I'm a professional Christian. I think they were saying, like, yeah, you're good. You can miss community group. I was like, no, I can't. I need it. I needed that meal. So actively be filling your heart with the word of Christ. Be among the word-filled people of God. Number three, feast on the Lord by joining in with the word-driven ministry of the Lord. Here's the question. Who are you discipling? You want to feast on Christ? Find someone that you can disciple. Find someone you can show them how to walk in the way of the Lord, that you can instruct, that you can teach, you can, you can pursue Jesus together. Who are you discipling? And let me just tell you, in Christ, when you're feasting on Christ, there'll be power in that relationship. It'll be satisfying relationship. You'll, you'll be effective. You know, Frank Barker, who's meant a lot to me in my life, he's a Presbyterian pastor in, in Birmingham, and he's had a big impact on my family and on me personally. 
But he tells this story of when he first started off in ministry. He, he actually went to seminary here in Atlanta. And then he started pastoring a little church. I forget where it was. I think it was like Anniston or maybe it was LaGrange, somewhere between Atlanta and Birmingham. And anyway, he was there doing ministry at this church, but he wasn't a Christian. He'll tell you, I wasn't a Christian. He was the pastor, okay? He said, I wasn't a Christian. Yeah, of course I knew the Bible. I'd been to seminary. I could recite certain things. I was a follower who wasn't really a follower, but he had this guy, he was in, Frank was in the Navy, and he had this guy from the Navy that was really discipling him. And one day, through this guy's discipleship, Frank became a Christian. And Frank said, man, once I became a Christian, I was a really good pastor. <laughs> he was a lousy pastor before he became a Christian. But once he became a Christian, then he can really pastor. What's, what's happening there? Frank wasn't feasting on Christ. He was following some moral code. He was following the crowd. He was doing something, but he wasn't feasting on the Lord. But once he started feasting on the Lord, once he really knew Jesus, then all he could do was be a part of a word-driven ministry. And let me just tell you, you know what Frank spent his whole life doing? If you go to like a Cracker Barrel in Birmingham, Alabama tomorrow morning, Frank's 90 maybe plus now, and he's probably in there reading the Bible with someone. That's all this guy wants to do. It's feast on the Lord with people. Share this meal that he's found. You want to feast on Christ? Be a part of this. Be a disciple maker. Be participating in some sort of word-driven ministry of the Lord. Who are you discipling? And then finally, feast on the Lord by participating in the word-demonstrated sacraments of the Lord. I love the, the little sacraments that God gives us, baptism the Lord's Supper. They're simple. They're so simple. But they're so profound. And what these sacraments do for us is they allow us to enter in to the drama of the people of God. When you take the Lord's Supper, when you take this communion that represents the body and the blood of Christ, you remember the story. You remember that God's been at work. You join in a very real sense with the people of Israel on that night in Goshen, when judgment was coming upon Egypt, but they were protected by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house, they were safe. You join in with those people. You join in with the people of God through generations who have taken this meal, hoping for the delivery that would come. You join in with the disciples of Jesus that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread before them and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood that was spilled for you. And you join in with Christians throughout the ages. You join in with the story, the people of God. You become a part of this story, see? It's the same thing with baptism. When you join in believer's baptism, when you pass through the water of 
of judgment. Really, the water is the sign of judgment. We see it all through the Bible. The people, you join in with the people of Noah, Noah and his family, who even though the whole world around them was being judged by the flood, they were safe. They were held safe by God. God was bringing them through. They were delivered. You join in with those people. You join in with the people of Israel when they crossed the Red Sea. On either side, the same sea that was about to judge the Egyptians, to bring condemnation on the Egyptians. You join in with them as they passed through the judgment of God. You even join in with Jesus who endured baptism. Remember when he went to John and John says to him, why do you need to be baptized? What have you done that was sinful? And Jesus says, I'm showing them what must be fulfilled. I'm showing them the way. And of course, Jesus did endure judgment. He endured our judgment on the cross. But the good news for us is that he passed through and he has inaugurated a new kingdom, a kingdom that he is inviting you to be a part of, that you can experience through his word, that you can experience through the word-driven ministry, that you experience through community, through the word-filled people, and that you could even experience in this very profound way through the word-driven sacraments, the word-demonstrated sacraments. I said this to my kids a couple weeks ago. I said, you know what Christian, Christianity is like? I said, what's your favorite movie? And John Kellis and Imriana said Sandlot, and I was proud of that. And I said, the Christian life is like this, John Kellis. It's like you love that story. You love that story. And all of a sudden, you're watching that movie and all of a sudden, you're on the screen, and you're hanging out with Benny the Jet Rodriguez. You know. You're in the story. That's what God has done. He's invited you into this narrative to be a part of this people. And so I can't think of a better way to celebrate what Jesus has done and to corporately feast on him as we see these few that are coming today to enter in in a dramatic way into this story and to follow Jesus in believer's baptism.